Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. Stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. Have you ever had a friend that you've kind of hated to? Maybe secretly or very openly? One of the recurring aspects of hag horror is that the hags in question usually hate other women, either because they're younger or they have the job or the house or the looks or the man that they want. The reason really is always an excuse. I've explored the vicious relationship that exists between family, like the sisters of whatever happened to baby Jane or dead ringers, cousins in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, but I'm really fascinated as to why, next to failed motherhood, the other big relationship that keeps surfacing over and over again in hag horror films is the tense, prickly, and violent one between female friends. So in this episode, I'm going to try and understand what underpins that particular kind of bile. Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host, and in the series of the Final Girls, I'm exploring the undersung and underdiscussed genre known as hag exploitation, hag horror, psycho biddy, or grand damn guignol. In the last episode, we covered why all hags are bad mothers. And in this episode, I'll be looking at how exploitation films explore the particular kind of viciousness that women reserve for other women, using three key texts from three different decades. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice from 1969, What's the Matter with Helen from 1971, and Death Becomes Her from 1992. These films really stretch out the mold of the hag horror genre by going hard on the viciousness of its lead villains and the pure spite at the heart of their relationships with other women. The protagonists of these films are caught in codependent friendships where they don't really like each other that much, but stick together nonetheless. The three films I'm covering in this episode all approach female rivalry and friendship from a different vantage point. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice looks at a nasty serial killer targeting older women. What's the matter with Helen is a portrait of a friendship that means different things for the women involved. And Death Becomes Her is... Well, Death Becomes Her. Before I begin, as usual, I want to credit my sources. Mostly and throughout the series, I've referenced the book Crazy Old Ladies by Carolyn Young, Curtis Harrington's memoir Nice Guys Don't Work in Hollywood, The Adventures of an Aesthete in the Movie Business, and Shelley Winter's memoir Shelley, also known as Shirley. Throughout this episode, you'll also hear from friend of the pod and filmmaker Jen Handorf, 
it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, this episode will spoil all three films. And if you have, if that bothers you, please consider checking them out before listening any further. Let's start with Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice. The 1969 film was produced by Baby Jane and Sweet Charlotte director Robert Aldrich and very much followed in the footsteps and the, and the conventions that he himself set up with his prior successes, including, obviously, in the name. This time, though, Aldrich was not directing, and both the casting and the tone of the film is quite different from previous hack horror films, which is a polite way of saying it's not as assured and not as accomplished as the ones that he made. Geraldine Page plays Claire, a curmudgeonly woman who is hella mad that her husband has died and, despite pretenses of wealth and a pretty luxurious lifestyle, actually only left her briefcase, two daggers, and his collection of butterflies. No money. She moves to Arizona, ostensibly to be closer to some family, where she develops a bad habit of killing her housekeepers and pocketing their savings or assets. Her victims are usually older women with little or no family, and she cruelly disposes of them by turning them into compost for her garden. The titular Alice arrives to take over as Claire's housekeeper after the previous one disappears, and is seemingly a demure and lonely retired nurse, but is in fact there to investigate the disappearance of her good friend Edna, who had been Claire's previous housekeeper. Contrary to how most actresses were cast in the hack horror films I've covered previously in the series, Geraldine Page was riding high in her career. Firstly, she was only 43 when she was cast as the elderly Claire, so she had to be aged up with makeup and a grey wig. Secondly, she'd just had her third Oscar nomination a year before shooting Aunt Alice. She was even nominated the same year as Betty Davis got her last Oscar nod for Baby Jane, so she was tangentially involved in that whole drama. And she also had several Emmy nominations for her television work. Similarly, her co-star Ruth Gordon, who plays the titular Alice, and who would become Claire's last victim, was on a roll. Aunt Alice was Gordon's follow-up film after her Oscar-winning performance in Rosemary's Baby the year before. Gordon had been acting since the silent film era when she started off as an uncredited extra, but she found huge success in her 70s and was delighted about her new status as a star. Alice would be her first starring role after 54 years in the film industry. Claire, as a character, is one of the most vicious women of all the films I've seen and covered so far in this series. She's as barbed as Baby Jane, but no reason is given other than her being an elitist, greedy, and snobby person. Although the film starts with her husband's death, we don't get the sense that she even gives a shit about him dying, and is much more irritated by the fact that she now has to go and find money herself and didn't just inherit a whole bunch. Claire targets older, lonely women and hires them as her housekeeper slash live-in companion, which is perhaps an old-fashioned way of saying that she's hiring a friend that she can boss around. From these women, she demands to be served and flattered with platitudes, particularly around her financial savvy. 
That's the word that I've been trying to think of, style. That's what you have, Mrs. Marable, style. Well, I thank you. I should hope so. Well, a flair for things. I wish I had. I wish I had your flair for money. I don't believe I ever heard you mention money before. <laughs> it's hardly a flair, dear Mrs. Dimmick. I'm not a greedy woman, but it irks me to see how little my money earns in the bank. When you talk about your stocks, they sound fabulous. The film very much plays out as an extended confrontation between Ruth Gordon's Alice and Geraldine Page's Claire. And their final fight is one of the most violent scenes in the film, which is saying something considering that whatever happened to Aunt Alice begins with Claire haphazardly burying a woman in her in her back garden, getting on her hands and knees in the dirt to dig the shallow grave. And includes a scene where Claire lures in, fights, and kills her neighbor's dog. What a frog you are! You come into my house in the guise of a faithful companion. You want to utterly destroy me. I didn't come here to destroy you. You did, however, lie! So did you. Edna never left this house. Did she? What was Edna Tinsley to you? For many, many years, she lived in my house. We ate together and shopped and traveled. She was my companion. Do you expect me to believe that... I don't care what you believe. I shared bread with my companion, not crumbs. I never humiliated her. She left her. your service. Yes, she did, and that was my doing. But she was ready to come back to me. She told me so over the phone. Her voice shaking, she was so frightened of you. Where is she? Although, let's address something. There is a weird possessiveness that comes even with the use of the word companion. And the fact that Alice, even though earnest and fair and thinking of Edna very much as her friend, constantly refers to her as her companion and as someone that she in a weird way also owned. I'm not giving the film that much credit to think of that as being a deliberate choice or a comment on how toxic friendships can sometimes evolve into having a sense of ownership over another person and that that is definitely bad. But from a contemporary mindset and with my own personal fascinations with how female friendships are displayed on screen, both in their positive and their negative, I do think there is something strangely condescending and with a whiff of ownership going on underneath both of these women's relationships with poor Edna, who, who, bless her, is killed very early on in the film. Claire is effectively a serial killer. There is an unblinking ferocity to Paige's performance as Claire tears into and belittles the women she hires to serve her and keep her company, peacocking as a financial savant while being secretly skinned. Once Alice enters into the situation, the film takes full advantage of the height disparity between the actresses by filming Claire lurking menacingly behind the much more petite Alice. 
In one particularly horrible scene, Claire laughs at Alice combing and maintaining her auburn wig with her gray hair exposed, as if she too did not have gray hair. Her viciousness is particularly stark when contrasted with Alice's earnest desire to find out what happened to her friend Edna, one of Claire's previous housekeepers. Alice is knowingly putting herself at risk to find out what happened to her friend, and Claire is so full of her bullshit that she tries to twist herself into being the victim somehow. You could have lasted quite a few years. Do you expect me to be flattered? I expected a little loyalty. It isn't often that I find someone whose company I enjoy, truly enjoy. I saw many happy years ahead for both of us. You are the only mistake I made. Their final confrontation, which starts out as an argument and ends with Claire beating Alice near to death with a telephone, is the horrid heart of the film. The camera often stays on one of the women's faces as the other one hurls insults at her. Claire laughs at an incapacitated Alice and drives her to sink her body into a nearby lake, smiling all the way. As a character, she seems to have total disdain for the idea of friendship between women as a whole and plays up the wounded widow role only when other people are around. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice did not have the cultural effect of a baby Jane, nor did it garner Oscar nominations for its lead actresses, but it was a box of a smash, and it's a nasty little gem for contemporary eyes, I think. It would also mark Robert Aldrich's last venture into the genre that he helped mold. He had a series of box office flops, as well as some commercial hits that had little to do with hags or horror trying to recapture some of that gothic magic, he was in talks with a TV network in the early 70s about producing a series of southern gothic melodramas inspired by his exploitation films, but that deal fell through. And he would never make another horror film again, either as a producer or a director. His influence, however, is notable, especially on the films of the young film critic turned filmmaker Curtis Harrington. In the last episode, I spoke about The Killing Kind and asked you to remember the name of its director. Curtis Harrington is as paramount to the hack horror genre as Aldrich was, producing five films that comfortably sit in the genre. Producing five films that comfortably sit in the genre. Games in 1967 with Simone Signoret as a shady German cosmetic saleswoman. What's the Matter with Helen and Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, both in 1971 and both starring Shelley Winters. The Killing Kind, which we've covered with Anne Southern as the possessive mother. And the TV movie Killer Bees, which is not exactly great, but it does star Gloria Swanson in her last ever role as a matriarch of a family wine business who has a psychic connection to the killer bees that make the wine taste better. What's the Matter with Helen is the one that interests me today. Based on a story by Henry Farrell, the novelist behind Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and the co-screenwriter of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, 
The film is the story of both a failed motherhood and a failed friendship. Set in the 1930s, middle-aged friends Adele and Helen move town after their sons are convicted of murdering a middle-aged woman and they suffer constant harassment by press and a mysterious caller making death threats, making death threats against them. The film is not so much concerned with their relationship to their sons as it is with what happens when they move cities, change names and open up a dance school for girls, with Adele dancing and Helen playing the piano. Things start going sideways when Adele develops a blossoming romance with a local man and Helen's feeling of paranoia combined with her religious zealotry are compounded by this feeling of abandonment by her friend. In the film's finale, Helen, who's been suffering from hallucinations, has murdered her pet rabbits, pushed the man making threatening phone calls to them down the stairs, and stabbed her friend Adele to death, strapping her corpse to a ladder while she plays her signature song. Initially titled The Best of Friends, the film was retitled to cash in on the recognition of the Haxploitation formula, which by this point was on its way to becoming less commercially successful and less critically interesting. The film is not just about Helen's growing instability, but about the psychotic codependency that exists between the two women. While Shelley Winters has a showier role as Helen, who starts hallucinating bodies and makes a grotesque scene at, the, at an evangelical church, there is plenty for Debbie Reynolds to chew on as Adele. In her hands, Adele moves very quickly from sweet to sharp if Helen gets in her way. In one scene, Adele grabs her friend by the shoulders and yells in her face that she wants her out of the house. It's fairly tame by comparison to, say, a woman boinking another in the head with a shovel, but Adele's prickly edges make the central relationship between the two of them fascinating to unfold as it heads to its ultimate and bloody conclusion. And you do act like a killjoy sometimes. I'm sorry. I mean, I come home from a great evening with a great guy and you have to bring up Wes. But it's a realistic problem. I mean, I, I thought that he should know about it before you get too seriously involved. I'll tell him. Oh, excuse me, Adele. Uh, are you scared that... Yes, of course I am. I'm scared as hell. Good night. Adele. Adele. Uh, Adele. Uh, did, did you remember to lock the door downstairs? I did. For the part of Adele, Curtis Harrington needed an older actress who could dance. The filmmaking team first approached Rita Hayworth, as well as Joanne Woodward, who turned it down because her husband, Paul Newman, didn't like the part. After asking around and not managing to find a big enough name for the studio, they eventually convinced Debbie Reynolds, she of the musical classic Singing in the Rain, who at that point, despite many successes in her career, had been struggling to leave behind her cute and wholesome image. 
I was still thought of by many people as cute or the kid, which is hard to maintain after you hit... Reynolds said, cute can be the kiss of death for a movie career. At this point in her life, finding it increasingly hard to find good movie roles suited for her plentitude of talents, Reynolds transitioned to television much like many of the actresses of her generation. For Helen, the filmmakers tried Betty Davis, who politely turned the role down because it was too similar to her previous hag roles, and plus she didn't want to, quote, log any more dead bodies around and throw them in ditches. Shelley Winters, who played Helen, had similarly experienced a difficult transition in her career as she aged. After starting out as a blonde bombshell in the 30s, by the time the Curtis Harrington projects came along, she was 50 and had gained some weight, both crimes of the highest order in Hollywood. So the roles that were coming her way were mostly emphasizing her, quote, unattractiveness. Winters was brash, funny, witty, describing herself in her memoir as a senior citizen sex symbol and a constant and very funny guest on the talk show host circuit. Her life was unbelievably full. She'd been roommates with Marilyn Monroe when they first started out, and she recounts in her memoir how they made lists of the Hollywood men that they wanted to fuck. Winters won two Oscars out of four nominations and was consistently employed in film and television, although her reputation started to become somewhat tarnished as she was known to be erratic and a bit difficult to work with, sometimes resorting to drinking on set if she was going through a period of mental anguish. Harrington experienced some of that difficulty on the set of What's the Matter with Helen?, Winters refused to wear the costumes that she had approved in advance, would lock herself in the trailer and refuse to come out until her agent said that they were threatening to replace her with Geraldine Page. Even though they had been friends for years, she became annoyed that Debbie Reynolds was constantly making the crew laugh and felt that Reynolds was being privileged by the film's cinematographers with better lighting. Debbie Reynolds, on her part, was disturbed by how intensely Winters took the role of Helen, fearing that she had changed a fake knife prop for a real one. And here they are joking about it on a talk show in 1981. Well, I nicknamed Shelley Killer because in the film, <laughs> at the end of the film, she was supposed to kill me. But the problem was that she sort of got so in, you know, the method school with yeah. Shelley is you know, the method. So when she gets into the method, I mean, forget about it. You lose Shelly Winter, she's just banana cake. She's the character she's playing. So right away, <laughs> I knew she was going to kill me from the start. Well, I had that knife in my I hand. Know you did. <laughs> a rubber so, dagger? No, it's no, supposed to be rubber, one. but yeah. she decided she really didn't like me. No, that's oh, not Oh, yes, and I had to check that knife every day. I checked that. Did you go over is it the rubber knife or is it the real knife? <laughs> <laughs> you scared me to death, you crazy thing. It's good to see you. Nice good to, to see you. you. I watch you. It should be noted, too, that despite these troubles on set, Winters and Harrington were friendly and worked together once more in the same year on the grimy fairy tale Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. And Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds remained buddies, too, with Winters appearing in Reynolds' 80s aerobics video wearing a sweatshirt screaming, I'm only doing this for Debbie on it. What an icon. 
What's the Matter with Helen received a tepid release and, most annoyingly for the film's director, the distributor decided to use a still of the final shocking shot of the film on the poster, revealing to any potential audiences that Adele ends up dead and strung up like a puppet. Harrington wrote about his disappointment with this release in his memoir, saying that the film was sacrificed at the altar of the summer cash flow by its distributor. Despite its frustrating release and middling reviews, Helen was the film that Harrington was most proud of, the one that he felt fully embodied the theme of obsessive, misdirected desire that he wanted to explore, of love and death and how they intersected. Harrington, who was openly gay, wanted to explore Helen's repression and how her, quote, hypocritical inability to face her sexuality brings only tragedy to those around her and madness to herself. Winters also knowingly dialed up Helen's lesbian longing in her performance, although she somewhat regretted it years later because cinema has a long-standing tradition of depicting its gay and queer characters as mad or violent and their sexuality as deviant. Carolyn Young's book Crazy Old Ladies quotes Winters as saying in the 90s that now that I look back, I don't know whether I would have shown a lesbian as being so crazy, but maybe that's the only way they'd allow it. It is debatable whether Adele is knowingly toying with her friend's unacknowledged feelings for her. But with the knowledge that both the director and one of the lead actresses of the film were planting this sub subtext in there, I'm inclined to think that she did. By 1992, which is the year that our next and final film, Death Becomes Her, was released, the hackspotation genre was well and truly extinct. Aside from occasional and ill-received films like 1981's The Fan or The Watcher in the Woods, which I covered briefly when talking about the last leg of Betty Davis's career, and which is very much more fantasy than a horror film, and films that were biopics that reference hack horror films, like Mummy Dearest, uh, about Joan Crawford, hack horror was no longer in vogue. Horror of the 90s, as I explored through 40 episodes of the teen horror season, really privileged the teenager and the young adult. There was no room anymore for older women or older people in general. And just on a practical term, the generation of stars, of movie stars that had the sort of name recognition and decades of stardom and legacy that, say, a Betty Davis or a Geraldine Page or a Demi Reynolds had had, were aging out and passing away. And you might be thinking, why is Death Becomes Her even being covered in the season? It's not strictly a horror film, and it is an absolute banger. When you think about it, though, it is about two women, one of them an actress. Both of them cast aside by society, who views them as disposable once their main currency of youth and beauty starts to diminish. 
And although you couldn't say in any universe or in any timeline that Goldie Hawn or Meryl Streep were has-beens in 1992 or today, it's undeniable that the film shares the same kind of concerns about aging, about aging in Hollywood specifically, about women's desirability, and about the conflicted relationship between two women. I'm joined by filmmaker and friend of the pod, Jen Handorf, who similarly to me adores this movie to talk about how Death Becomes Her does fit in the hag horror mold. When women get older, when we hit about 40, uh, which is the the mean age of the actresses in this film that we're going to see, which I love. Um, when we hit 40, uh, we entered the, the, the don't give a fuck era of our life. And this is um, partly, you know, just maturity and wisdom and partly biological changes that start happening in our body. So it's also to do with this notion that, uh, you know, at, at, in this day and age, we say that at a certain age, women become unfuckable. And so there's this, there's this point at which men in society sort of lose their power over women in the patriarchal system. And I think the myth of the hag, the folktale of the hag is, is patriarchal propaganda. And uh, this female rivalry, I think is part of that. I think this film is a beautiful piece of patriarchal propaganda. I think that it's a snapshot of gender roles as seen through the lens of 1992 you know sort of every man robert zemeckis and so i think it's it's only natural that we see women being pitted against each other not because it's any kind of representation of reality but because if the women fight each other then they're not paying attention to the patriarchy Death Becomes Her is a really fun addition to the exploitation catalog. It's not as dark or serious as a lot of its other uh, uh, comrades, but what Death Becomes Her brings is a really true perspective of the hag and of the hag as a character in both Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn and Isabella Rossellini you know, three of the most beautiful women <laughs> who are playing uh, playing women in their f- approaching 50, but they're all actually, you know, between 38 and 42 years old in this film. The idea that these women could even be considered past their prime, that these actresses could even be considered past their prime. I think the idea that these actresses could even be considered past their prime is ludicrous and only something the, you know, 90, 1992, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels kind of culture could give us. Um, but from its conceit to its meaning, it really is a film about how women are perceived, how they are perceived to lose value as they age, how they're beauty and therefore their usefulness to being perceived uh, fades with time and where they get their power um, from ultimately. So I think it's, it's a fantastic hag anthem. 
Meryl Streep was 43 and Goldie Hawn 46 when they played the bitchy besties Madeline Ashton and Helen Sharp in Death Becomes Her, possibly the gayest movie to be ever made by a straight filmmaking team. We meet has-been actress Madeline Ashton as she's starring in an ill-advised musical rendition of a dark Tennessee Williams play. Only a great performer, Meryl Streep in this case, can play a bad one. And no matter how terrible Madeline is on stage, she captivates the plastic surgery boyfriend of her friend, writer Helen Sharp, played by Goldie Hawn. Madeline promptly steals away the boyfriend, marries and ruins him, transforming Bruce Willis's Dr. Ernest Manville from successful surgeon to alcoholic undertaker. Ernest's new specialty in making the dead look good comes in handy after both Madeline and Helen take a mysterious youth serum from an equally mysterious European woman who promises them eternal life. And she means that literally, because while they are magically rejuvenated, they promptly kill each other. So it ends up being a hag zombie movie where two undead rivals end up bonding together in order to convince the man that was once the reason why their friendship broke apart and the object of their affection to stay at their beck and call to spruce up their dead skin as and when it's needed. While I absolutely love Bruce Willis as Ernest flapping about and screeching at the zombie woman he's stuck in between, he doesn't really matter here. The fact that Madeline and Helen even ever fought over him is kind of laughable. So my favorite thing about Ernest, uh, Bruce Willis's character, is the fact that he is like the ultimate objectified male. Um, nobody cares about Ernest beyond what he can do for them. Um, it doesn't mean they don't care about him. At some points, they, they very much care about him. Um, and we see later in his life, uh, he stops being objectified and starts being loved. And at the funeral scene, we've seen how wonderful his life has been since he left these women who were objectifying him. Um, but yeah, he, he bless him is a, is a pawn of these two very powerful women. Um, in the name of uh, hormones and a little bit of love, but really predominantly hormones. We, we can't actually trust that Ernest has a good heart or anything like that. Um, he's a plastic surgeon, for God's sake. But one of the interesting things as well is Ernest initially had a much more redeeming arc in this film, but uh, the director, Robert Zemeckis, chose to edit it out. And, uh, you know, he found love. He, he uh, with a character played by Tracy Ullman. Um, and that ultimately he sort of went off from the sunset and lived happily ever after. Um, I think he still gets a pretty happy ending. I think he led a full life just because we see him at the end of the life rather than his denouement. I don't think that makes it any less of a good outcome for him. Um, and, you know, ultimately he did, he did murder his wife. So we can't we can't forget that no matter what the potion did, he definitely murdered his wife. Yeah, I mean, Jen is very right. We tend to forget the fact that no matter 
how pathetic Ernest is, he did literally murder his wife. But let's talk about the potion. Because this is what makes Death Becomes Her really interesting to me as a hack film. Because hack horror films tend to be very grounded in reality, uh, very exaggerated, definitely melodramatic, definitely drinking a lot for the melodrama that was so popular in the Hollywood of the 30s and the 40s and 50s, but it very rarely goes supernatural. The films of Curtis Harrington that I sometimes refer to as fairy tales or very grimy fairy tales have that sweaty sheen of the 70s. I think the color as well that he brings, the way that he shoots these women in these films gives that extra layer of almost exploitation horror that black and white, especially in the early hack horrors of the 60s, just didn't have. It was still aiming for acceptability, whether it's the films of later on from the 70s were really relishing the obsessiveness and the grotesquerie a bit more, a bit more openly, and they were definitely a lot more explicit. So Death Becomes Her, by the sheer use of this magical glittering pink potion that makes everyone immediately hot and forever young is very facetious and exaggerated, but therein lies its power, right? Sorry for the pun. Because it makes the obsession with youth ridiculous. And one of my favorite uh, body horror comedy scenes is when, as Jen mentioned, Meryl Streep, immediately after taking the potion, sees herself in the mirror and her tits go boop, and her butt goes up. Everything becomes part. She is magically the age, something that we're very used to now in pretty much almost every major big budget picture, but it was definitely an achievement back in the early 90s. is laughable, as is the fact that Madeline calls herself a girl once she is de-aged. So instead of making the hags terrifying creatures, it makes them comedic. It sort of laughs at their obsession, and by laughing at their obsession, it laughs at ours. One of the interesting backstories about this film was that originally the the character of Lisa, I might be mispronouncing that, the mysterious, very hot woman played by Isabella Rossellini, had a bit more of a backstory. In Death Becomes Her, she really is just this mysterious, vaguely European, vaguely continental hottie who gives out magic potions that make you live forever at your physical peak. But Originally, she was supposed to have a bit more of a character to her. She was supposed to be this woman who wanted to create a commune of the greatest minds that ever lived, but the greatest minds that ever lived kept rejecting her potion, her forever young serum, because they did not see the point in living forever if everyone around them was dying. The moral of the story being obviously that the fleetingness of your youth and your beauty is kind of the point of living. 
So Lisa would end up with this harem of superficial Hollywood types that were the only people who genuinely cared about being youthful and beautiful forever. Kind of wish we got that prequel now, to be honest. So it's really interesting um, how this film addresses aging because it, it really, you know, it talks about the youth serum and death and this and that and the other, but it isn't so much aging as becoming sexually undesirable, which is the fear in this film. Um, it's not it's not the passage of time or or exactly what happens. It's becoming less sexually desirable. It's very spelled out in several moments. Our policy clearly prohibits more than one in a six-month period. So it's been nearly that long already. Miss Ashton, you had one three weeks ago. You know, when Meryl Streep's character goes to her young lover's bungalow and he's sleeping with someone else's own age, um, and she's absolutely devastated. She's not. She's not heartbroken because of the lack of love. She's pissed off because she's not. She's lost her sexual potency. She's lost her desirability and the power that comes with it. Um, even Isabella Rossellini's character, um, who I love. They've been very clever here. Isabella Rossellini is is a beautiful 40-year-old woman in this film. I, you know, my God. I didn't know that was possible at 40. Um, and there's a bit where she tells Meryl Streep's character to guess her age. And Meryl Streep says 38. And, and Isabella Rossellini's character looks so pissed off. And I love that they did that because she's only two years older than that. <laughs> She was 38 in the in she during the making. Oh, she would have been because of the release year. There you go. So so very clever. Very clever nod here where the idea of being told you look your age is is unacceptable because it means you have less power than you did last year. Um and it's it's you know that the hag is a character who says fuck that. My power is not going anywhere. It's you know it's been inside of me all along. And yeah, I think this film takes a very interesting look at that because it, it's about women who think that their beauty is their power and do anything they can to hold on to it. But ultimately, it's not the beauty that was important. It was the wisdom and the, the, you know, the wherewithal and the being able to heal yourself and upkeep yourself was what was most important to them at that stage. <laughs> so I think it's fantastic. I think it's actually quite aging positive in the end, even though it, it comes from, you know, 1992's incredibly toxic culture. Um, it still airs on the side of being actually quite morally good in its conclusion. Because Death Becomes Her is all about Madeline and Helen's rivalry. Their obsession with each other. 
during their iconic fight scene after Madeline shoots Helen in the belly, leaving a head-sized gaping hole in her stomach, and Helen breaks Madeline's neck with a shovel, they circle each other like stilettoed vultures until they realize that they've both made the same deal and drunk the same magic death-defying potion. In the past, Helen's toxic obsession with Madeline had put her into a debilitating pattern of self-destruction. That obsession becomes circular when Madeline sees Helen, now magically revitalized and a successful writer. Both of them are only relevant and successful and powerful when they are desirable. And perpetuating this toxic lean-in idea that there is only room for one woman at a table at a time, if Madeline is hot, Helen can't be, and vice versa. Do you believe how she looks? How old is she? Fifty. Fifty? You've got to be kidding. I wonder what her secret is. The film is peppered with mirrors everywhere, in offices and hallways and doctor's rooms, to remind us that these women are all about image. That's all they care about. Madeline's obsession with her looks is so total, she instructs her housekeeper to tell her, Madam, you look younger every day, each morning upon waking up. And she sleeps enclosed in anti-aging devices. She goes to her frat boy lover for an injection of youth. Ultimately, both Madeline, Helen, and any other hack's hatred of other women is a way of deflecting what they're actually raging at. The fact that their value disappears, their contributions are ignored, and the currency of their beauty is no longer valid after a, quote, certain age. And this is the other thing that makes Death Becomes Her stand out to me. Not just as a phenomenal comedy horror, but also as a hack horror. Because of its emphasis on the bodies of these women, which are destroyed over and over again, and because it's a comedy, it is essentially bloodless. You know, Goldie Hawn's character Helen gets shot through the stomach and there's basically not a single drop of blood and she has a perfectly circular hole through her belly. Madeline gets her neck broken several times over and again, not a single bruise. But this is what's funny because hack horror films have constantly demonized and made monstrous and made haggard and laughable and terrifying the bodies of older women who commit the ultimate sin of just aging. Death Becomes Her constantly repeats the same joke, the same central absurdity. Their bodies are not their own, and their bodies, no matter how they are transformed, maimed, and destroyed, either through anti-aging mechanisms, or through magic, or through death, they're always going to end up worse than if they had just left it alone. And by making it so explicit and so exaggerated in a way that only comedies or body horror films can do, it hammers in this idea that this being the central preoccupation of one's life is ridiculous. So I would definitely say this is one of, you know, one of the most successful comedy horrors. This is effectively a zombie movie. These characters are undead. We know that their tissue is dead. She goes to the hospital. She is undead, right? This is, this is, 
you know, it really needs to be on more zombie lists. But <laughs> I think it very much plays with the idea of, of the physical body and, and the VFX allowed them to do a lot more contortion and a lot more things that drew the eye um, with the body than had been able to be done on screen before Meryl Streep's neck twisting about the whole through goat, you know, the, the literal <laughs> seeing through Goldie Hawn. Um, and it's all very deftly done in the name of comedy as well. Um, so I think it, it balances itself really cleverly and really beautifully um, while making it feel like the actresses are definitely in on the joke. Um, when we see Meryl Streep's butt magically lift and her breasts magically become more pert after having taken the serum, it doesn't feel like Meryl Streep is being self-critical in that moment. It feels like she's in on the joke and saying, isn't it stupid that this is what society wants? Even the character's line, I'm a girl. Um, you know, not just I'm youthful, not just I look younger, but oh, I'm 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 a, a powerful baby woman again. I'm a sexy baby. Um, exactly, I'm a sexy baby. Um, so I, I I like to think they're in on the joke, and their work makes me think they're in on the joke. So it certainly uses their bodies for comedic and horrific effect, but I think in a way that is just holding a mirror up to that practice. At the end, Madeline and Helen are stuck together forever. They are undead and eternal. Their skin is layers and layers of paint jobs, eyebrows and eyelashes stuck on with superglue. They are Baby Jane Hudson times 3000. When they attend Ernest's funeral, where he is eulogized by the priest as discovering the true meaning of eternal youth in his family and community and all that sappy bullshit, the two women cackle and leave, trip, fall down the stairs of the church and break into a bunch of pieces. We leave them as two disembodied heads, still blinking and still barking at each other. This wasn't the original ending though. There was a much more poignant, much darker ending place that both Han and Streep much preferred, but that didn't test well with audiences. So it was rewritten and reshot to give Death Becomes Her a better final comedic punch. I'll let Goldie Han herself tell you about the original ending because, well, she's Goldie Goddamn Han. Death Becomes Her had an ending that we went to Witznau for. Witznau is in Switzerland. I think it was a much more interesting ending. But because it didn't test as well, there was another ending that was put on, rewritten, and we actually reshot it, which nowadays everybody reshoots their ending, so it's no big secret. The original ending was, was, was much more poignant because we were not all blotched up and the paint was all screwed up and everything. We were absolutely the same. We were just the same 37 years later. And we were sitting in front of this beautiful backdrop of mountains and lakes and we were bored, bored. It's more of really the message of the movie. And Meryl said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? And she said, well, I don't know. You want to go to London? Well, I don't want to go to London. I've been to London. Well, what about Paris? She's again? I mean, they were just, and they hated each other because all they had was each other. All their friends have died. They were, I mean, 
Now they look down and they see this old man, and it's Bruce Willis. And he's touching the hand of this woman, and he's so in love, and he's very close to death. But he has such great quality of his life. And we looked down, and we looked, in, and Meryl said, isn't that pitiful? She said, look how old they are. And I looked at them, and that's when my character was able to really look at them with longing. And she'd say, aren't you glad we're not them? And then I got to lie and say yes and mean no. And that was the end of the movie. And that is really what the movie says. And unfortunately, it wasn't an up funny ending. It didn't have the punch the rest of the movie had. It wasn't special effects and wild and crazy. And people just sort of deflated. These three films give us a run-through of how the genre evolved from the once genius albeit repetitive formula established by director-producer Robert Aldridge into the grim fairy tales of Curtis Harrington in the 70s and refreshed in the 90s by a big-budget, effect-heavy comedic approach. And throughout these three films, we can also trace how these films have portrayed female friendship and rivalry. From the nasty, to the sweet, to the codependent, these relationships are always barbed, but when they're in the hands of performers like Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds, Ruth Gordon and Geraldine Page, it's such a goddamn pleasure to watch them. Because ultimately, these films prioritize the interiority of these female characters and their preoccupation no matter how superficial they might seem to some. Thank you so much for listening to the Final Girls podcast and to the seventh episode in our series on hags. Thank you also to Jen Hander for her contribution. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnaBDemented and you can also dive into the previous seasons of the podcast where we have covered witches, vampires, female monsters and teen horror. Stay tuned for next week's episode, tracing how the hag started to claw her way back to relevancy in the horror of the late 2000s.